Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week, we are discussing Isaac Newton. I know that might seem strange, since we all know about Newton and Leibniz arguing over the discovery of calculus, or perhaps Newton getting hit on the head with an apple and discovering gravity. Now, whether that last story is true or not, I don't know. But Newton also had a lot to say about the Old Testament. As someone who wrote on just about every subject, that shouldn't be surprising. And as a person who is famous in his own day, his Old Testament writings garnered responses from many individuals in his day and after him, which we will be discussing in later episodes. So, to begin with, a brief outline of his life. Isaac Newton was born in 1643 at Woolsthorpe Manor in Woolsthorpe by Colsterworth, which is in the county of Lincolnshire. His father, also Isaac Newton, died three months before he was born. When Newton was three, his mother was remarried and went to live with her new husband, Barnabas Smith, while her son was in the care of his maternal grandmother, Marjorie Ayscoff. From 12 to 17, Newton attended the King's School in Grantham, where he learned math as well as Latin and Ancient Greek. However, in 1659, his mother took him out of school and urged him to become a farmer because she was widowed again and they were trying to support the family. But the master at King's School persuaded his mother to enroll him again, and so he went back to school. A couple years later, in 1661, Newton was admitted to Trinity College, Cambridge, on the recommendation of his uncle, William Ayscoff, who was an alumnus. He was originally a subsizar, which is that he paid his way through school by performing valet duties, but he then received a scholarship in 1664 that allowed him to continue for four more years to get his master's degree. In 1665, he began developing his calculus theories and also received his bachelor's degree. For someone with my skills, developing calculus, or even part of it, is impressive on its own, let alone while you are still an undergraduate. Anyhow, soon after he graduated, the university closed for two years as a precaution against the Great Plague. And it was actually during this time while he was studying at home that his genius really started to shine. Newton returned to Cambridge in 1667 and was elected a Fellow of Trinity College. At this point in history, fellows were required to be ordained as priests and that is specifically priests within the Anglican Church. Newton did not want to do this at all because he had some 
honestly quite strange ideas that could not be reconciled with the church's views. Well, he had a way out of this issue, sort of. He was appointed Lucasian Professor of Mathematics in 1669, which is one year after receiving his master's degree. Part of this appointment required that the professor not be active in the church so that they could study science more. Keep in mind that this requirement of not being active means to like not hold an official position within the church, not to divide your academic and professional time between church duties and school duties. It was not a request that the professor not attend or disagree with the church. So Newton made a petition to Charles II that this calling of the position should exempt him from taking church orders and the king granted his request. Keep in mind, he was very theologically active and very interested in being a good Christian and being part of the church. He just had some unorthodox interpretations of scripture. Anyhow, Newton was then elected fellow of the Royal Society in 1672 and was a member of the Parliament of England for Cambridge University in 1689 and 1701. He then moved to London to become the Warden of the Royal Mint in 1696. He became Master of the Mint in 1699 and held this position for 30 years. He took the positions at the Royal Mint very seriously and actually retired from Cambridge in 1701 to focus upon his work there. He was obsessed with finding counterfeiters and even did his own undercover work in local taverns to try to discover these counterfeiters. This may sound strange and honestly quite intense for the Mint to investigate so thoroughly at this point in time, but counterfeiting at that time was considered high treason and if someone was found guilty they could be punished by being drawn and quartered also newton estimated that 20 percent of the coins that were taken during the recoinage of 1696 were counterfeit so it was clearly a widespread and in the eyes of the government quite serious problem in 1703 Newton was made president of the Royal Society and an associate of the French Academy of Sciences. He was then knighted by Queen Anne in 1705 during a royal visit to Trinity College. He later moved into the home of his niece and her husband at Cranberry Park and lived there until his death. Newton died in his sleep in London in 1727 and was buried in Westminster Abbey. So with that briefest of introductions, let's take a quick break before we get into Newton's Old Testament work.
Welcome back. If you have been following this podcast, you may remember a podcast episode on John Spencer. It was a long time ago, so if you don't remember, I don't blame you. The brief synopsis of John Spencer is that Moses learned everything from Egypt. He believed that Egypt had the older and truer esoteric religion, and God brought the Israelites down to Egypt to learn from them. Isaac Newton, however, did not like this interpretation of history. He wanted to prove that the Old Testament is the true record of the oldest civilization. However, he wasn't going to do that through anthropology, but through astronomy and mathematics. He wasn't just concerned with having the Old Testament be the oldest because he liked old records. He thought that having it as the original keeps the Old Testament from being discredited. So let me first try to explain why he is concerned about the age of the text before going into some of the quirks of his reading methods, or I guess deciphering methods might be a more accurate description. So the reason why he wants the Old Testament to be early and original is because everything falls apart over time. He views the world as devolving, not evolving. As someone in the sciences, this seems fairly natural. If you leave food out, it will rot, and if you make copies of a book by hand, eventually it gets corrupted. However, this wasn't just the scientist in Newton. This was a common thought in the Renaissance and even the early modern period. I mean, the name Renaissance itself means rebirth. The goal is to go back to the classical and ancient world and regain the brilliance that was lost and corrupted. You can also take this into a Christian perspective that the Bible is mediated by fallen and flawed humans who copy and retell the story quite poorly. Well, Newton's method for overcoming this problem is twofold. First, it is to argue that the Old Testament is original and ancient, and second, to use mathematical, scriptural, apologetic methods. So the first one, arguing that the Old Testament is original and ancient, Newton claims that there were three golden ages, Adam, Noah, and Jesus Christ. So Adam is the paragon of religious and philosophical knowledge. Noah, Jesus, and even Moses and the prophets are just reformers. They are going back to Adam's primordial religion and the basic creed of that religion, which is love God and love neighbor. So Newton spends a lot of time talking about Noah's religion rather than Adam's religion. This might seem strange, but if you believe in a global flood, then all remnants of Adam have probably disappeared because he was obviously before the flood. So you look at the next best thing. Also, if you believe that Noah is simply hearkening back to the glory days of Adam, then looking at one is essentially looking at the other. I have some issues claiming that reformers are recreating the original, even though I recognize that I come from the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, which claimed to be regaining the faith of the early church. 
I don't believe that is a possibility, but either way, Newton did believe that this was not only a possibility, but the actual events that happened, and he believed that Noah was essentially reviving the teachings of Adam. So this is how we are going to show that Old Testament religion is original. Newton sketches out his vision of primordial religion as put forth by Noah after the pattern of Adam, and how this was corrupted after these two great creator and recreators of religion. This is a way of showing that the utopia began with the Old Testament ideal and devolved from there, not the other way around. So Newton calls Noah's religion Pratania. Newton claims that during Noah's time, quote, there was one Piraeum in every city placed in the principal part of the city, and in the Pratanium was the court where the council or senate of the city met, end quote. In addition to being a court, it was also a place where sacred rites were performed by the magistrates and the king, which included sacrifices offered to the true God. Now, within this perfect image of a city comes Copernican ideals. I know that just made your head spin, and it does for me too. What does Copernicus have to do with the organization of ancient cities during Noah's lifetime? Well, the temple edifice of these ancient cities and their hieroglyphic representations were microcosms of the heliocentric universe. The fire sacrifices were also done at the center of worship and so represent the heliocentric divine order of creation. So, Noah and Adam before him were creating worship centers devoted to God but also representing the organization of the solar system, with the sun, or fire, at the center. As you might notice, Newton is perfectly fine combining his interpretation of the Old Testament with his view of astronomy in ways that may or may not be acceptable by most modern interpreters. So, the two foundations of history are Noah and Jesus, being that before them, Adams was kind of wiped off the face of the earth during Noah's flood. So the two foundations are Noah and Jesus. For Newton, the Christian development is really only Jesus as Messiah. Everything else is apparently the same. Remember that the goal is to get back to the primitive perfection. So Christianity cannot add much from Noah. Jesus as Messiah is an obvious addition, but other than that, it is really just a return to the previous golden era. So Noah's religion is at the dawn of religious history and is the foundation of natural religion. The Christian religion is foundational also, but with revealed religion, because Jesus as Messiah is revealed rather than natural religion. But this revealed religion keeps all the earlier natural religion essentials, which is what Newton is really going for. So let's answer the Moses borrowing from Egypt point that John Spencer claimed. Newton claims that, quote, religion is partly fundamental and immutable, partly circumstantial and mutable, end quote. And so there is a tension between natural religion that's 
while the same everywhere at all times, and historical religion that has a particular expression at different points and in different places. Using this tension, Newton claims, quote, religion is the same at all times, but the religion which they received pure from Noah and the first men they debased with their own inventions. Moses began a reformation, but retained the indifferent elements of the Egyptians. Christ reformed the religion of Moses. End quote. Did you catch that? He acknowledges that Moses retained some elements of the Egyptians, but the true religion did not begin with Moses. The pure religion came from Noah, and Moses simply began a reformation. His reformation was then reformed even better by Jesus, who really brought it back to the Noah-type golden age. So even if Moses had a few Egyptian elements, the core of true religion did not come from the Egyptians, but from Adam through Noah and eventually through Jesus. Noah also critiques the chronologies of ancient pagan authors. His interpretation of these histories is not positive. As Newton claims, quote, The Greek antiquities are full of poetical fictions. How uncertain their chronology is and how doubtful. And as for the chronology of the Latins, that is still more uncertain, end quote. He also critiques the Assyrian historian Theseus, claiming he, quote, feigned a long series of kings of Assyria whose names are not Assyrian nor have any affinity with the Assyrian names in scripture, end quote. He claims the Egyptian priests, quote, had so magnified their antiquities before Herodotus as to tell him that from Menes to Maris, there were 330 kings whose reigns took up as many ages, that is, 11,000 years, and had filled up the interval with feigned kings who had done nothing. End quote. So the history of the Old Testament is correct and older than Moses, and in addition, the other histories by other ancient civilizations are dubious and inaccurate at best. In order to make his history work, Newton breaks from the common understanding of the Old Testament history. When making overarching schemes of world history, many of the chronologists of his day followed Joseph Scaliger and James Usher, who, about a hundred years before Newton, had established some fairly standard dates for biblical and extra-biblical historical events. However, Newton blazed his own path. He moves the date of the flood back 577 years from these commonly accepted dates. He also cuts off about four centuries from Greek history and cuts down Egyptian history by about 600 years. He moves dates forward by about 1,800 years at times. So he was more than happy to reassess commonly held dates and events in order to fit his biblical scheme. His main goal was to defend the chronology of the Masoretic text. So the Greek Septuagint and the other pagan accounts were seen as unreliable. 
In his revisions of historical events, he changes the date of the fall of Troy in order to make Solomon's glory days have historical priority. He even claims that Israel's political institutions were models for English constitutional government. So, all good and godly things, if that's what you call English constitutional government, but including that, all good and godly things come from the more ancient Israel originally. So the true religion, even good government, comes from Israel, then to Phoenicia and Egypt, and finally into Europe. So one way of getting to the origin of true religion and take it out of the hands of the Egyptians is to claim that an even earlier tradition than Moses or the Egyptians is the source. With this background, Newton develops his own method of interpreting the Bible. Remember that all things devolve including the biblical accounts. So you must get back to the original account that lies behind all the corruption and degradation. Newton describes how, after Babel, inaccuracies crept in. If you know the Tower of Babel story, the basic gist is everyone spoke the same language, decided to build a tower, and then God stopped them and gave them multiple language so that they could not join together and try to build a tower to heaven again. Well, Newton uses this Babel account to say that the names of biblical individuals became obscured through translation issues, and these issues eventually led to their veneration as gods. So gradual linguistic confusion and the decay of knowledge of these languages explains polytheism. The names of the first humans were eventually used for stars, and these stars were then described as animated spirits and finally venerated as gods. Newton blames this decay of primitive religion on the Egyptians and claims that idolatry spread from Egypt to Greece and then to Italy and the West. So, language confusion was a crucial step in creating idols out of mere humans and now this corruption is universal, but not total. For the idolatry happened even in Israel, and in the days of Noah. But, in the days of Noah, as of now, God preserves the basic message, even though people tend toward idolatry almost constantly. So, if even Israel was corrupt, and if even Israel has their own linguistic issues, how do you deal with scripture? Well, you decide which parts are trustworthy and which are untrustworthy. Just as Newton automatically regarded pagan sources as untrustworthy, he also regarded parts of the Old Testament as untrustworthy. In fact, quite large parts of the Old Testament. He used a philological method that moved the authority of the message away from the text to the history behind the text. However, Newton does not just look at the history behind the text, but the scholar who interprets it. He rejects the idea that priests hold the key to interpreting scripture and believes that God gave him the right to interpret the text as part of the elect remnant of true believers. So that is to say that a true Christian, like Newton, can use history to understand the words of scripture 
and perhaps cut out some of the words if they don't fit the historical model or reinterpret them to fit that model. By the way, many people in his own time claim that he was playing fast and loose with the words of scripture, but he thought that this was necessary to establish the priority of the Hebrew Bible and Israelite civilization. Now, in my opinion, this is a double-edged sword because he is trying to defend scripture but chops up the text and seems to have more confidence in his own method of interpretation than the text itself. So, how much does that actually support the text rather than Newton himself? I don't know. But, Newton created rules for interpreting ancient texts in scripture. His treatise on Revelation from the 1670s and 1680s conceived of textual interpretation as the quest for simplicity. If simplicity sounds like a science goal, well, it is, and that is where this kind of comes from. The simplest solution is the best solution. The same thing in math. You can find many ways to get to the right answer, but you always aim for the one with the least amount of actions required to get there. So Newton seeks to flatten out the language by eliminating all metaphorical and poetic elements. This leads him to creating a scheme for reformed spelling as well as various alternative symbols and phonetic transcriptions that he hoped would contribute to the reformation of the language or at least our understanding of it. In other words, he will change the spelling and reinterpret anything that is not clearly literal. Poetry has no place in Newton's interpretation because it cannot be reduced to a simple and straightforward message. Newton appeared to believe that much of the Bible is devoid of sacred wisdom and only select parts should be mined for this wisdom. He had a special fondness for Daniel and Revelation and looked to them for this pristine religious element. He also believed that the Hebrew language itself contained uniquely divine elements that themselves contained deep secrets about the divine order of nature. So, even though the Bible is a mixture of holy and less holy elements, or at least trustworthy and untrustworthy elements, the language itself is rich with divinity. This view of the special qualities of Hebrew is not unique to Newton and has been seen more or less in many of our previous podcast subjects who tend to view Hebrew in a very different way than they would other languages. As much as Newton was into the Hebrew language, he was even more into prophetic language, if that wasn't obvious by his love of the books of Daniel and Revelation. However, Newton has a slightly different definition of prophetic language than just the words used in prophetic texts. For him, prophetic language is a way of talking about the primal language, and that language which alone is able to have an exact correspondence between words and things. So divine knowledge only comes through this prophetic language and not the other corrupted, devolved language. As Newton says, prophetic language is any word or phrase that conceals, yet preserves, truth from history. Quote, 
John did not write in one language, Daniel in another, Isaiah in a third, and the rest in other peculiar to themselves, but they all wrote in one and the same mystical language. End quote. So the prophetic language transcends the linguistic particulars, and even Newton's fondness for Hebrew does not override this. All the biblical languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, are all potentially prophetic. The esoteric knowledge can and should be extracted from the hieroglyphic husk and the husk then discarded. By hieroglyphic husk, I'm meaning specifically the letters and words of the language itself. So when Newton interprets Daniel and Revelation, he transforms their prophetic imagery into a series of dates. He uses their language to get at something deeper and honestly more mathematical than the words of the language itself. Let me give an example of how Newton gets to mathematical truths from the biblical text, specifically using Solomon's temple. Now keep in mind, Newton has an affinity for numbers, so things like measurements, dates, and quantities are of special interest to him. So Newton argues that Solomon's temple and the description in Ezekiel's temple are the same. If you're familiar with the biblical text, you will know that the description of the temple in Ezekiel is quite different from Solomon's temple in 1 Kings because it includes some apocalyptic elements like the man that looked like bronze or the sound of rushing water and even measuring like the land of Israel. But anyhow, Newton argues these are the same. And also keep in mind that metaphorical uses are a no-go for Newton. As I said earlier, he is flattening out the language to get at a literal meaning, not a metaphorical or poetic meaning. So, Newton argues that both the temple in Ezekiel and Solomon's temple are the same, and he reconciles the accounts by explaining any discrepancies as textual corruptions. Newton gives priority of the temple description to Ezekiel, and so changes the numbers provided in 1 Kings. However, he also knows that Ezekiel's description is incomplete and honestly pretty obscure, so he rationalizes and supplements Ezekiel's measurements as well. Remember that Newton wants literal clarity and the apocalyptic nature of Ezekiel's account does not make this reading easy. So the question is why he focuses so heavily on the measurements of the temple. Arguably, the account in 1 Kings really culminates in Solomon's blessing and the glory of God filling the temple. In the same way, the Ezekiel account seems more concerned with how sacrifices are done and again, the glory of God filling the temple than all of these measurements. But Newton is less concerned about God filling the temple or the metaphorical imagery than the physical measurements of the temple itself. His interest in measurements has two points here. First, measurements contain mathematical data, so they are resistant to corruption in ways that normal human language are not. 
As someone who struggled with math as a child, I question whether writing numbers is less open to corruption or distortion than writing words, but that is Newton's claim. Second, Newton believes that the temple is a microcosm of the universe. Remember his interpretation of Noah's city centers. Since Newton believes that the structure of the universe is mathematical, the biblical account of it must be mathematical as well. His attempt to decipher and reconcile conflicting numbers is meant to show how the scriptural account aligns with the structure of the universe, and so scripture's authority can be based upon the foundation of nature. So this is where I will leave us with Isaac Newton. His main goal was to return to the golden age of pure religion. And he traced these golden ages from Jesus to Noah to Adam and claimed that their basic truth was love God and love neighbor. And this translates throughout all time. He also argues that Solomon's temple and the layout of Noah's religious centers reflect the organization of the universe, specifically the heliocentric model. He uses his own interpretation of the Old Testament to dismiss other historical accounts and change the dates of historical events to show that the Israelite religion was in fact the earliest and most reliable tradition. His reading method was heavily focused upon math and flattening out the language to find the kernel of esoteric knowledge hidden within the text. Face value reading is insufficient and poetic or metaphorical language must be mined for this deeper truth. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe to it on whatever platform you're listening and also tune in in two weeks for one of Newton's contemporaries who actually had a long letter exchange with him, Thomas Burnett. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. <laughs>